as I said in the first service, and I've said this before, uh, super thankful to be here with you guys uh, always, but particularly always honored to be able to share God's word. And uh, I've got a lot to say, uh, a lot that I'm holding, I think a lot that we're all holding uh, that I want to uh, share with you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Can I pray for us? I was going to pray anyways. I was just being courteous. So, God, thank you so much. Uh, for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, As I prayed in the first service, God, I think all of us may be coming in holding things, carrying things that are particularly heavy, Uh, perhaps some more than others. Uh, Those of us that are, are from marginal communities, marginal groups, God, we may be holding this uh, perhaps a bit closer, a bit heavier. Um, God, I know I am, and so I pray that you, that you first and foremost uh, make us aware of your company. I think oftentimes we may rush to ask you to do something or work something out, uh, but I think what we all need is an awareness of your company with us uh, in the way that Jacob needed it when he woke up from the dream. that you make us aware of your company. Holy Spirit, I pray that this would not simply be a sermon, but an opportunity. I pray that I wouldn't just simply flip through pages or read words, but that we would all have an opportunity to see your face. Uh, And I can't make that happen, so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would breathe on this time. Help me to be good only at getting out of the way that we would experience you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, excited to be here with you guys, but, but if I'm honest, as I shared earlier, uh, I think I, I am coming to today uh, particularly heavy and burdened uh, as I think about both Buffalo uh, and Uvalde, Texas, uh, and the lives that were lost, uh, but really the theme of our nation um, I think I'm holding that particularly close, and uh, we're going to read two passages, two passages today, one to kind of anchor us and another one to kind of just settle in. Uh, the first one is in John 13, uh, verses 31 to 35, and the other, if you have your Bibles with you or it will be on the screen, uh, you kind of put your finger on Luke chapter 15, the story of a father and his two sons, a well-worn passage. But my hope is to kind of look at it from a new angle, a fresh angle. Uh, and extract from that story on the anchor of John 13 uh, in a way that gives us some perspective on how to engage the cultural and social moment that we're living in. So John 13, verses 31, you'll see it on the screen. This is Jesus uh, in the last few days of his life on earth and his disciples. It says, when he had left, talking about Judas leaving, Uh, the table after Jesus sent them off. It says, when he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a, a little while longer. You will look for me And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Reputation matters. How we are known to each other and the world matters. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. It's a beefy passage, but hopefully we can get from it what God wants this morning. This is Jesus talking to a bunch of religious leaders who are trying to trap him in a corner. And as he always does, he shares a story. Uh, And he says, starting in verse 11, he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything in a uh, a severe famine, struck that country, he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed the pigs. He longed to eat the fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. I always read that and laugh. I'm like, he longed for the things that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. Kind of like the pigs, like we're not sharing, you know. It's always funny to me when I read that. Uh, But no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father didn't care. The father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robes, put it on him, put a ring on his fingers, Jordan's on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near to the house, he heard things was busting. So he said, yo, what's happening? him and your father's slot what's happening servant said yo your brother's back <laughs> he told him and your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound then he became angry started to hate i didn't want to go in so the father came out and pleaded with him but he replied to his father look i've been slaving many years for you and you and i've never disobeyed you or your orders yet you never gave me a young goat so that i could celebrate with my boys but when, his, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitu- prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, the father said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But, he had, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Part, portions of that were the rich version. Uh, but listen, as a kid, I used to admire clever people. I used to admire people that had the skill of quick wit uh, and just watch something be thrown at them and they just come back very quick-witted, very clever with their words. 
But as I got older, I started to admire that person less, and I started to admire more the person that was with people that were kind, the older I got. And here's what I think, engaged in my relationships, and the more I engaged with my world, especially as a brown kid, I started to realize that what was most impressing was not people that knew a lot of things, but people that were kind. It wasn't what you were able to pack in your head that impressed me, but it was what you were able to pack into your heart that impressed me and how you demonstrated that. And I think what John does for us here in our passage in John 13, it gives us a little bit of a basis. Hey, love as I have loved you. Love one another. How the world will know that you are my disciples, how the world will know that you follow me is by this. And and it's It's astounding to me that this is what Jesus offers because this is perhaps Jesus' last moments with his his disciples before he's arrested, before he's betrayed, before he's arrested, arrested, and before he's given into crucifixion. Jesus takes this moment. He says, if I had to sum up all the three years that we had together, these are my parting words. And he sums it up and he says, love. This is how the world will know you. When you learn to practice love, not when you get good at debating, not when you get good at presenting your case, but when you get good at love. That's how people will know that you follow me. If Christians are to be anything in this world, especially in this cultural moment. If Christians are to be anything, we are called to be creators of space. People who work diligently to create margin. In essence, hospitality sits at the center of who we are to be, of what God has called us to do, of this mission of love. Hospitality sits at the center Because hospitality is what enables us to create a world real enough for people to enter. This is why I love art. Whatever art you consume, whether it's a painting, music, for any of your hip-hop fans in here, Kendrick Lamar's new album is something that I've gone deep into. It immerses me. That creation of art is so beautiful because art is one of the few things in our lives that create a world real enough for you to enter. Think about the last movie you watched. Good movies don't simply entertain you, they immerse you, they invite you. You look at the characters, you watch their character arts, you consider the conflict of the story, you consider the setting, the, 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 the wardrobe, the music, all of it is immersive. That's what makes a movie good. Not simply to entertain you, but to invite you to consider something new, to consider a vantage point, to consider a setting, a moment. And as Christians, our responsibility is to create moments, to be creators of space, real enough for people to enter. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time doing. That in the world we're living in today, with the dynamics that we're living in today, living with today, excuse me, 
we ought to be creating at least three kinds of spaces. And depending on time, I might only get through two because I had a lot to say. But the first one is this, and this is all built out of Luke 15. If we are to be creators of space, the primary space I think we should be building, that if we're going to create any kind of space, we need to consider this younger brother. He finds himself in a really unique space. He's in a space where his poor decisions and his shame as a result are dictating the way that he understands himself. The space that he's in of shame and poor decisions are dictating the way that he sees his identity, the way he understands it. He says to himself at the height or at the worst part of this story, he says to himself, what? I'm no longer worthy to be considered your son. Let me just be a hired servant. Let me just be a hired servant. And then at the height of it, at the climax, he says, when he came to his senses, he said to himself, how many of my hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set back out and go to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Physically, this younger brother had nothing to eat, but emotionally, mentally, psychologically, he had nothing to believe. His space, his circumstance is dictating the way that he understands his identity, and his identity feels broken. He didn't even believe he could be restored as a son anymore. He would settle simply to be a hired servant. And you know what, church? There is perhaps no environment worse than the one that tells you that you don't belong. There is no environment worse than the one that tells you that you don't belong or the one that tells you that your past is far too complicated or, or the one that tells you that your hurts or your burdens are too heavy to carry. Listen, I guarantee you, any space that you occupy that convinces you that your burdens are too much that your past is too complicated, or that you don't belong is not a space inspired by the Spirit of God. It is just not a space inspired by the Spirit of God. But I love what the pops does in this story. Check what he, check what he does. Instead of being okay with the space his son is in, one where hurt and poor decisions and shame dictate the identity of his son, the father creates an entirely new space for that son to exist in. Follow me. Look at verse 20. He says, he got up and went to his father, but while he found him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, his son's past and poor decisions were still very real. The consequences were still very real. But this new space now, while it acknowledged that it was a real thing that the son was going through, that his identity was broken, it didn't suffocate his identity. That he was still his son, even if the son didn't think he was worthy of being one. This new space didn't allow for his poor decision, his shame, to suffocate his identity as a son. In fact, he creates a space where hurts are actually welcome. The father creates a space where hurt is welcome, a space where hurts are embraced, not resisted, embraced, not turned away, embraced, 
not judged, embraced, not examined or evaluated or assessed to see which hurts are okay to deal with. Church, please follow that the space this father is creating when it comes to this son's hurt, when it comes to this son's trauma, when it comes to this son's baggage, he's not saying, no, we don't embrace that. We're not making room for that. He doesn't resist it. He doesn't turn it away. He doesn't judge it. He doesn't examine it. And that's very key. Because I think oftentimes the reason why the church is of no repute to the world is because we often examine or evaluate which pains, which traumas, which baggage we want to let people come into the church with. But the Father here is creating a space where he doesn't assess that on the front end to see which ones are okay to deal with, to see which ones are okay for, to, to step through the doors of the church. He's saying, no, 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 we're not resisting, we're welcoming them. Have you ever felt suffocated by your decisions? Have you ever felt the overweight, uh, 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 the, the weight of your burdens? Perhaps the decisions you've made or the decisions that have been made on your behalf. You didn't ask to be abused, but now you have to deal with the trauma of that. Have you ever felt suffocated by the decisions that you've made or perhaps the decisions that others have made that affect you? Of course you have. That's why we often recoil and say, like the younger son, I don't belong. I'm too broken. I'm too complicated. I carry too much weight. My burdens are far too heavy. Let me just be a hired servant, Rich. But the father's saying, but you're my son. The father keeps creating this space. He says, quick, bring the best robes. Put the flyest threads on him. Put a ring on his pinky. Put some Jordans or dunks on his feet. Let's throw the biggest party we, we've ever thrown because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now listen, y'all, in the past, I've had to really, really not glaze over this detail. And I think oftentimes I had glazed over this party detail. I've said this before here at the church. I come from a Hispanic Latino background. My parents are immigrants from the Dominican Republic, and we celebrated just about everything. (laughs) And we were loud about it. (laughs) We had people at the crib, a.k.a. my house. You know, we had people at the crib... Then I was like, who's this person again? Oh, that's your tia's uncle's nephew, brother's boyfriend. Why are they here? Well, you know, because you learned how to tie your shoes. You know, we got to throw a party for that, right? <laughs> we celebrated anything and everything. And I, I think I realized that part of the reason that we lived in that kind of celebratory posture, in some sense, has to constantly were either working from behind or working with some kind of obstacles, and they saw the value of celebrating the details. They needed it. Their sanity needed it. <laughs> because so much of their world was filled with tension and, or being othered or, or, or being marginalized or, or, or putting an obstacle that wasn't in the way of another group of people. And so they realized the value of celebrating the smallest things, 
their mind, their sanity, their, their souls needed it. And in some ways, I realized that reading this story and, and stopping and pausing at this small little detail where the father throws a party for his son meant so much to me culturally that I couldn't just overlook it. You see, this party is the expression of a new space. It's the symbol of a new space where compassion and responsibility for one another's hurt and brokenness is deeply important to the father. This party with his dad's presence as a symbol of his dad's forgiveness, in fact, his pops being in the room as he throws this party, is a one where safety and refuge and compassion identity. But then you got the oldest son. The oldest son is repulsed by the whole thing, primarily because his pops expects him to be in the same space he created for the youngest son. <laughs> pops creates this really crazy space for the, for the younger son, and then he expects the older brother to be in it. So he's repulsed by that. And I think he's repulsed by it because the older brother had no imagination of his younger brother coming back and being celebrated for it. It wasn't, in, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a category in his head. It wasn't a category in his head that his brother's return would be celebrated, that his brother's rebellion would be forgiven, or that his brother's debt would be canceled. He just had no categories for that. So to expect him to be in the space where, this, where his father celebrates the younger son frustrates him. This is, why the old, this is why in verse 28 it says the older brother became angry and refused to what? Go in. But the father's a G. By that I mean he's really cool about what he does here, right? The father, the father creates the same space for the older brother that he does for the younger brother. And he does it in the only way he knows how, through gentleness. The text right after that says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. The father doesn't wait for either of the sons to come to him, but rather he takes the initiative to go to both of them. We read earlier how the father ran out uh, to the younger son, threw his arms around him and laced him from head to toe before, check this out, before the younger son could utter one word of repentance, the father was already celebrating him. Y'all notice that? Before the younger brother uttered one word of repentance, Pops was already celebrating him. And now we're reading that how despite his bitterness and hardness, the older brother and his resistance to come into the space, the father shows a gentle kind of love toward the older brother by coming out. Now, I've had to sit with this detail, that sequence of events, carefully. I thought if I miss the sequence of events, I think I miss why the way of Jesus is so beautiful. Church, the, the message that we carry is so deeply good and beautiful because it says that God's kiss and embrace, which are signs of his love and invitation, is not the response to our, our repentance. It's actually the action that inspires our repentance. And to miss that sequence is to miss the beauty of God's love for us. I got you. 
The message of the church, the one that we carry, is so deeply beautiful because it says that God's kiss and his embrace, which are signs of his love and his invitation, is not the response of our repentance, but rather it is the action that inspires it. And if you mess with that sequence, you mess with what Jesus came to do. You miss entirely why the message is so deeply radical. You miss entirely why it's so compelling. And the question that we have to wrestle through is how have we been an extension of this powerful and redemptive love? Offering forgiveness in some cases seems ridiculous. Making past failings and deficiencies count for nothing Rendering those who have failed equal to those who have achieved. Looking at those who have merited their solid place equal to those that feel undeserving. All of that usually provokes outrage. To claim that God is a God of joy, amnesty, and forgiveness. All of that is outrageous enough to get someone crucified. And it did. And his name is Jesus. Because that's the message he carried. See, we're part of a society that doesn't often look positively at total amnesty or grace or cancellation of debt. This is why the way of Jesus in the backdrop of our world is so revolutionary. But how is the Father able to offer this kind of grace and generosity and amnesty? It seems whimsical or insubstantial, but I think verse 12 offers us some clarity. The word used there in verse 12 is asset. When the younger brother said, yo, let me get my assets. Let me get the the inheritance that's coming to me. The text says that he was given the assets, but that word assets there is not the typical word that you use to describe stuff you own. Life him, he asked for something that was going to tear the father's life apart. The father divided not simply his property, but his life for the son. This father gave his life so that the son would be celebrated. It was love that created a space for mercy, compassion, and justice. It was love. It was love as God demonstrated it, as God defines it, that created a space for mercy, compassion, and justice. It was love that transformed the younger son's faith again, or as Zora Neale Hurston says, it is love that makes our souls crawl out of its hiding place. It is love that makes our souls crawl out of its hiding place. But creating a safe space for hurts is not the only responsibility that we have. We must also create a risky space for power. Creating a safe space for our hurts is not the only responsibility, but we are to create a risky space for power. Now I can already tell I'm not going to have a lot of time to go to this third one. But I'm going to give it to you as it comes, right? <laughs> Think about this for a moment. The older brother has, up to to this point, created for himself a space where he had the power. Where he had the control to manipulate his father's hand and blessing, or at least so he thought. He said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat to go celebrate with my boys. What's up? In his mind, (laughs) 
This older brother's, his years of obedience and close proximity to his dad were not out of genuine affection for his father, but rather as a way to exercise power over his dad when the time was right. Y'all follow? This older brother looked at his closeness to his dad as a way to gain power over his dad when the time was right. The older brother wasn't obedient because he loved the dad or because he valued intimacy. He was obedient because he valued power. You see, part of creating spaces for life to flourish is either we abandon power or we abandon the selfish use of it. I love the way Ruth Padilla DeBoer says it. She says it this way. She says, as like with the unlikely Messiah from Nazareth, love demands death. Death to self. Death to the mirage of success that society is built on, causing injustice and an abusive creation. And perhaps it demands physical death. Only God's love can break us out of the selfish layers of protection so that we can become channels of God's love even in hard places. How many of us, church, lead lives where we run the risk of being close to God, not for the intimacy we crave with him, but for the opportunity to have power over him? The older brother complains. Check out the irony of this. The older brother complains about how his years of slaving for his dad, he complains about how he slaves over his dad only to treat his dad as a slave. You're not with me. Look, he says, I've been slaving for you many years only as an opportunity to treat his dad as a slave. You see, he's holding his dad hostage with obedience. Yet the father, like a real G, dismantles that whole idea of power. And he does it in the only way that we... Son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Not the way you thought he'd dismantle power, right? He says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Almost as if to say, your power and your performance have nothing to do in this conversation. You cannot earn what you have already, already been freely given. The father dismantles this whole idea of power and performance. He says, son, you got to rethink power. He says, son, you got to rethink performance. I, I, want, I, want, I, want, I want words like this to make us squirm in our seats, to make us deeply uncomfortable with the way that we hold power the way that we use it, the way that we view it, the way that we cherish it, the way that we value it. Father looks at his son, he's like, son, you got you to gotta rethink this. Your power has nothing to do in this conversation. Everything I have is yours. But you see, this was a very unwilling big brother. This was a matter of control for him, and I think we can connect to that. He's unwilling to reimagine the way that he understands his power and his performance. He's unwilling to see the merciful, gracious, welcoming, joyful posture of his dad. 
You see, this was a big brother that was not willing to share his inheritance with his younger brother. He was not willing to suffer the loss of what he thought his power and performance had earned him. His whole world is being turned upside down, and his only reaction is rage. How has our power become self-serving? How have our privileges made us blind to God's love and mercy and compassion? Listen, y'all, we are at a critical moment in society. I tell you what, man, from my point of view, I don't think the world cares much about our witness. It's just not convincing. The world does not care much about our influence if we have any it's just not convincing because because part of what this passage is reminding us to is that disciples are meant to be witnesses, not judges. Disciples are meant to be witnesses, not judges. And, and Dr. Christina Edmondson says it this way. She reminds us that a witness is only as influential or useful as they are credible. And we are living in a social moment where our witness is just not credible. And so we lack the influence and we lack the usefulness. Y'all remember that story where Jesus says, where Jesus says, he says, what, 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 good is, what good is salt that has lost his saltiness? And then he says, don't worry about it. I got the answer for you. It's, it's good to be trampled on is what he says. We don't have influence in culture. We don't have any usefulness in culture because our witness is not credible. Our witness is not credible because we trust ourselves far more than we do God. Because we've fallen in love with our power far than, more than we have our neighbor. You see, while this older brother failed to reimagine power and refused to share his inheritance, the story of God gives us a sweet reminder of another older brother. Jesus, the older brother who uses his power and what truly belongs to him and him alone in order to celebrate his younger sisters and brothers. It was Jesus, the older brother, who didn't hold on to his heavenly robes, but instead willingly stripped himself naked and shamed so that we would be clothed and celebrated. What the older brother in this story failed to realize is what Ephesians 2 tells us Jesus accomplished. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ even while we were dead in our transgressions. You see, unlike the father in this story, the father in heaven doesn't have to take from someone else's inheritance. Because his riches in mercy are endless. The riches of kindness are endless. The riches of forgiveness are endless. The riches of forgiveness are endless. God doesn't run out of mercy or forgiveness or grace. Church, look, this story historically has been viewed as a story about two sons. And there is some truth to that. But I think this story is more uh, fundamentally about a father. Jesus, talking to the religious leaders of the time who were trying to trap him, shares this story, and he begins by saying, a man had two sons. So while the story involves two sons and their behaviors and patterns and uh, their mental state and their emotional state, the story is deeply about a father and his two sons. 
And this may go unnoticed at first read, but I think if we miss this, we miss the reality that God is trying to teach us something about parenting, about love, about patience, about compassion, about gentleness, about firmness, about pursuit, about listening, about love, about understanding, about joy, about willingness, about justice. And it causes me to wonder, church, if we, if we miss this small detail, if this is a small oversight on our side, that it affects the way that we create spaces. We fail at creating spaces of welcome just as Jesus was accustomed to. Because remember, the context is him trying to show why he exists the way that he does. Because the accusation hurled at him just before this story started was... The Pharisees were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus tells this story. 1207. Let me say this real quick. The last space that I think Jesus invites us to, and I've kind of touched on this a little bit already, is not only a a safe space for hurts, not only a risky space for power, but a space for joy and celebration. If you look at all of Luke 15, it starts with three very famous stories, or well-told stories. The first one is, a, is about a man who loses his sheep. And he, goes, he leaves the 99 to go for the one. He finds that 99, uh, that one, and he celebrates. He rejoices. Then the story that follows is a woman who loses her coin. And she plucks all the couches up, and she's going crazy looking for it, and she finds it, and the text says she rejoiced upon finding her coin. And now, the story that followed after that is of a father who loses both his sons and finds them and rejoices. Luke 15 is laced with joy and celebration. So if we are not a people that are creating spaces for affirmation, then I wonder what gospel we're believing. What good news are we actually believing if we're not creating spaces of joy, but particularly spaces of affirmation? You know, I've often said that affirmation is like being picked out of a crowd of people because you feel seen. Affirmation is about seeing people. It's about being present with people. It's about creating a space where no one feels invisible, where no story goes unnoticed, where no detail in no one's story goes unseen or untold or uncelebrated. You know, in a month and a half here, I'll celebrate 15 years with my wife, 20 years together. And um, one of the things that I've come to realize about love in the context of relationship is that love is so closely related to listening that you that very, very seldom can you tell the difference between the two. That loving is about listening. So that in your listening, it changes the way that you engage. So that you don't simply do things for your friend or your spouse or others simply because you think it needs to be. Th- this is what they need. You see, because there's a lot of power in helping people when we're not listening to them. When we want to offer help the way we want to offer help. 
Because somehow we think that being in the position of needing help is somewhat less valuable. So if, if I could be on the other side where I give help, I can, I, can, I can hold a little bit more power. Even if I'm helping but not listening to people. You know, in, in, in conversations like the many that are being had in our society, particularly around race and ethnicity, power structures and systems... I think oftentimes people of marginal community, people of color, uh, they, they get exhausted talking about their stories. They get exhausted talking about what needs to happen, what needs to change. And I, I'm exhausted to talk so much about our story when someone asks, well-meaning, ask, hey, man, I want to know more about your story, your struggles, whatever. Uh, and there's a lot of beauty to the story, but there's also a lot of hardship in the story. I realize that sometimes... I think the reason why we're exhausted to tell our stories so often is because we wonder why we have to say them so much. Why do I have to tell you my, why do you want to hear my story when it comes to another tragedy? Nine black people being killed in Buffalo, the, the South Carolina, nine, why do I, why do, why is, why is my vantage point or opinion now important in these tragedy, it gets exhausting to talk about, and I think it's because we wonder why we have to say them over and over. And I think it's because we're not convinced that people are listening. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, now feel the responsibility of creating spaces where people's hurt and trauma and baggage are welcomed, not resisted, not judged, not evaluated, but welcomed for the, for the sake of being seen and heard and ultimately being led to healing. How are we now conscious of the fact that we have to actively create spaces where power is, feels uneasy with you? That if they were to that if a, 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 a hunger for power steps into this space, it feels uneasy. And creating spaces where people's stories can be affirmed, can be celebrated, can be seen. Because they belong. Because the space was created with them in mind. Because we didn't build God's table, but because God did. God built his table. And he invites who he wants to invite. How are we those that create these spaces? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your time, Lord, of being here with us through worship, through song, through confession, through liturgy, through your word. Remind us of your deep love for us. God, I do pray that these words, not mine, but, but the words and the themes that we find here in your word and mine. God, I do believe that you met me in my time of study, and I believe that these are not simply my words, but yours. So, yes, my words, too. God, I pray that they would sink deeply into the bones of your people, that we would not be impressed with how much we packed into our heads, but how much we packed into our hearts and how much exuded from our hands and feet. God, I pray that we would be people of the way, that we would not fall in love with the, with the that we would not that we would not fall in love with the idea of Jesus, but with the experience of Jesus. Help us to move past 
platitudes and into attitudes and actions. Help us not to remain stuck, but to, but to deeply, deeply take your words to heart. Holy Spirit, uh, do what I could never do. Uh, open the eyes of your people. Open our eyes uh, to live to the praise of our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.